the Sinai Experience, an event etched into the identity of the Jewish people. God's miraculous removal of his nation from the oppressive servitude of ancient Egypt and subsequent trip to receive the Torah in the Sinai Desert is the Jewish origin story. But for many Jews, this story has played a much more powerful role. It has convinced them of the unique truth of the Jewish religion. I'm Avi Cohen, and this is Jewish Thought Flow. And welcome to episode 8 of Jewish Thought Flow. This is your host, Avi Cohen. We're in part 2 of a series of demonstrations called the Sinai Proof, where we will be discussing the claim that the Jewish religion is the most truthful of all religions, and it's evident from the story of our history itself. So we basically gave over the proof last week in a very simple format, which was that there's a fundamental difference between, well, we use the two major religions as an example, but we're going to see how this is pretty universal amongst religions. There's a fundamental difference between the origin or start of said religions um, and the start of the Jewish religion. The fundamental difference is as follows. In all other religions, the actual case of revelation of God to man, the actual miracle that started the religion, the huge open miracle that started the religion, was in fact not open. It was to one individual or a small group of individuals who are the ones starting the religion. So we said in the case of Muhammad, it was him alone in the cave. We said in the case of Jesus, it was him telling over to his 11 disciples after he supposedly had died that he had come back and he is this is his mission and is, he has divine um, qualities. In both those cases, the people who eventually accepted the religion didn't see those occurrences. They had to believe it from the people who told it to them. And people believe a lot of things in life, especially in times when religion is prevalent and in the times where divine revelation to mankind was prevalent, at least at least in thought. And therefore, it wasn't hard for them to believe. However, the Jewish religion is very different than that because the Jewish religion is a claim about the people who are supposed to buy the religion, i.e. Moses is coming to them and telling them, you guys saw this revelation. You saw the miracle of the splitting of the sea. You saw the ten plagues in Egypt. You as a group experienced all that in a very short period of time. So now, if Moses was coming to them with a false story about themselves, a story that they obviously would know and they obviously would remember because of its magnitude within their lives, it's literally their relationship and interaction with a god, if that relationship and interaction did not actually occur, there is no way that they would have believed that. So Moses would have gone up to them and told them, do you remember when God split the sea in front of us? Do you remember when the Egyptians were chasing us and then the sea went back on them? Do you remember getting the Torah from Har Sinai? Do you remember hearing God's voice speaking to Moses? They would all say, no, we don't remember that. Go away, you're crazy. And that would be the end of that religion. The fact that it got off the ground would imply that the story was actually true because that is the only way they could believe that story. So in this next uh, part of the the proof, we're going to discuss the obvious rebuttal to that, which is this is all assuming there was a man named Moses who started the religion to the people he was claiming the experience happened to, meaning he was going to a group of people and saying the Egypt story, the Sinai revelation story occurred to you. This, obviously, I think any rational mind would easily dispel as impossible unless it had actually occurred. It would be impossible for them to believe it. But who said that this actually occurred? Right? The first problem with this argument should be evident. Obviously, 
If a charlatan approached the nation and tried to convince them that a miraculous chain of events occurred to them, they wouldn't believe it unless it happened. But nobody said that was the case. Perhaps, let's just think about this, perhaps a very charismatic man, one as charismatic as Muhammad or Jesus, approached a group of followers with an ancient scroll, with some ancient writing on it, and tells them that about a thousand years before that, God took a nation out of Egypt in a miraculous manner and gave them a Torah. Now, this scroll is the Torah. You, the group of followers who are listening to this story right now, are descendants of those people. And you need to follow me. And this scroll is your Torah. So now that story, that origin story, should avoid the whole problem. After all, people are not expected to believe something that clearly didn't happen to them, but they are expected to believe things that they can't falsify. So if they weren't told that you guys experienced it, and they were merely told that this happened to other people, and I'm the, the, the man who spoke to God, and he told me to reintroduce this religion to you for whatever reason, then that's a believable story. Because again, we're going with the same premises that people will believe things as long as they know, don't know it to not be true. And people will believe that man had connection with, with God or God had revelation to mankind. Because again, that was a prevalent belief at that time. So if that was the origin story, then wouldn't it avoid the whole proof? Meaning the whole proof is set up on the assumption, it seems to be, that Moses actually spoke to a group of people who were supposed to have experienced the Sinai story. What if Moses didn't speak to those people, but a different man, we can call him Jack. Jack spoke to, to a group of people and said, Moses lived a long time ago to your ancestors and you're the descendants. And this is the reintroduction of the Jewish story. So we'll call it like reintroduction of the Jewish story as opposed to the origin story. This would be like the second origin story. So this is where we add the other key element to the proof, right? So if we just had one element to the proof, which is that people wouldn't believe things they know not to be true, you wouldn't have a good sign of proof because you don't need them to believe something they know not to be true in order for the religion to get off the ground. We just introduced a fairly plausible scenario by itself where the religion could get off the ground. There's another pillar that this proof rests on. The first pillar, we'll just re-say so that we have it clear. The first pillar is people will not believe things they know to be false. However, they will believe things they cannot verify. So they won't believe lies about themselves that they know not to be true, but they will believe almost anything else, providing the person saying it is charismatic, has a reasonable background, and so on and so forth, whatever causes people to believe other people. The second and perhaps most important pillar of the proof, though, something we haven't said up till now, is that the story that they are sold is the one they will believe. Meaning, if I'm duped into believing an origin story that is false, that will be the story I will believe. I'll give some examples. Let's go back to the Islamic and Christian origin stories. So Islam, we have meditating Muhammad, private cave, private revelation. He then goes and relates it to his followers. Now, They'll believe it because they don't know it to be false. They don't know that he didn't have said relation. They also It also has plausibility because they believe in the idea of a prophet, and they believe that Muhammad was such a prophet. Now, I personally think Muhammad made up the revelation. However, I'm 100% convinced that there was a man, Muhammad, and that this is how the religion started. Why? Because whatever story they got duped into believing is actually the story of their tradition. Right? So... Muhammad actually existed. He actually came to a group of people and said, I had a revelation in the cave. 
So I think it's unreasonable to assume that Muhammad told him a completely different story. Maybe Muhammad came, I was by the river, and God came down and spoke to me directly and told me that we are the the Hobawakan nation, right? And then he told them that story, and then they just started the Islamic nation. That, that obviously wouldn't make any sense. Assumedly, they started the tradition that they were told. So the fact that they have a tradition of a private cave visit by an angel is presumably because Muhammad told them that this was the case. I mean, think about it. They're the devoted, gullible religious men. If they believe that Muhammad is a divine being, they'll make sure that their religion is going to carry on the story that they're told. So again, just to clarify, while I do not believe that Muhammad ever had such a revelation, I do believe that he did go up to a people and tell them he had such a revelation, and that's the story they heard. The exact same thing could be said about the Christian origin story. Again, while I do not believe that the disciples saw a resurrected Jesus, I do believe that this story is what they sold to the people. This is why it plays such a crucial and, 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 and central role in the Christian tradition. Because again, the rule is, the rule that we're running with, is the story you are told is the one you will have as your origin story. You're not going to switch stories. Because again, if you hold this to be a religion, this is the story you're giving over. This is what you're telling your kids. This is what you're basing your religion on. This is what you're telling them before they go to sleep. So now, let's focus on our story, right? If it was true that a man other than Moses approached the people with a story about their ancestors, the following thing would obviously happen, right? So a group of people have no memory of Judaism. They have no idea that there's such a thing as Jewish religion because, again, this is the claim where it's starting. Then a man walks up to them, very charismatic man, long beard, scroll in his hand, and says, your ancestors had this Torah, and now I'm trying to give it to you. So the first question they're going to ask is, well, what happened to our ancestors? Where are the Jewish people? Why do we know, not know about this Jewish thing if we're the descendants? Why aren't we keeping these commandments? Why have we never seen this Torah scroll? So the answer would have to be along the lines of, well, they died out or they abandoned the religion and I'm here to reinstate it, right? That's what it has to be. Now, they're going to ask him, well, how do you have access to this knowledge if they all died out? And he would have to say something like, I received a prophecy from God to recreate the Jewish people. Or... I knew it all along, but that one's a little bit like that I had a private tradition because that one's a little bit uh, less likely because then they would just ask him, well, why didn't you share it earlier? Don't you want us to be following religion? So you have to have some sort of divine command like now's the time to reintroduce it or now this is how I know it. But that's very plausible. However, if that was the story that was told, if this was all true, then that would be our story. Our tradition would have a distant memory of Sinai happenings and a much more real memory and a bigger focus on the arrival of the new prophet who started the revival of the Jewish people. That's our portion of the history, right? If that was the story we were told, that the old religion, the Moses religion died out, and Jack, the prophet, came and reintroduced his religion to us and brought it back to people who had no idea about it, that would be a huge part of our story. In the same way that Jesus changing the Jewish religion to the Christian religion is a huge part of their story. Most Christians do not know in detail our story, even though that's their distant history and their theology. They do know every one of them knows the Jesus story because that's how it relates to them. That's where it transitioned from the Jewish people to their people. Right? So they know that part of the story. If it was really true that a man not named Moses came to us and told us of a religion that was lost and he's reintroducing it, that would be a major story in our history. That would be a major part of history. But... As we all know, this is not the story of our past. 
Instead, our story is one of unbroken continuity. Moses gets the Torah, starts the Jewish nation, at least in a Torah sense of the Jewish nation. Obviously, the Jewish people existed prior to the giving of the Torah, but not as a Torah legal nation. And so it continues unbroken until this day. The all-important prophet of revival is noticeably missing from our story. Therefore, the only reasonable conclusion is that he never existed. If that's the case, if there's no middle revival prophet, then there only must have been a Moses who started religion with his followers. And being as that is not a falsifiable theory or story, it must have truly happened. There's one problem. We do have gaps in our story. We do have gaps in our history. We do have revivals. And if that's the case, that we really do have revivals, then seemingly our proof is over. So let's start investigating if there are gaps, if there are broken parts of our history with a revival aspect. So the, the first gap in our tradition would be in the times of King Yoshio. This whole story is found in Malachim Bey's Malachim II, the second book of Malachim, towards the end. So King Yoshio's grandfather was Menashe. Menashe was an exceedingly wicked king who attempted to lead the entire nation towards idolatry. His son, Amon, was no better, and continued in his father's way, leading the people towards idolatry and rebelling against God. This rebellion including the burning of Torah scrolls and the placing of idols within the temple. Amon's son was Yoshia, the hero of our story. In the 18th year of Yoshia's reign, which was around 452 BC, before the Common Era, so it's about 30 years before the first temple was destroyed. The following happened, and I quote, this is a quote from Elohim Bez, chapters 22 and 23. Again, I'm leaving out some parts of the story. I'm only quoting what's necessary for our podcast right here. If you'd like to go read the full thing, you'll see that I summarized the important parts, didn't miss anything out that's relevant. Chilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found a scroll of the Torah in the temple of Hashem. Shaphan the scribe then told the king, saying, Chilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. Shaphan the scribe then read it before the king. It happened that when the king heard the words of the scroll, the Torah, he tore his garments. The king sent out and gathered to himself all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all the people from small to great, and he read in their ears the word of the book of the covenant that had been found in the temple of Hashem. The king then stood at his place and sealed a covenant before Hashem to follow Hashem and to observe his commandments, and the entire people accepted the covenant. So now this is a problem. For seemingly, this dissembles our entire argument. Why couldn't King Yoshia be the second Moses? pretending to be reinstating the religion to a nation that did not know of it. Again, they found a scroll of the Torah in the temple of Hashem. That implies that they didn't have it, because when he read it to the king, the king was shocked. Then gathered all the inhabitants, all the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he read them the Torah, what was written in that Torah. And then they signed a covenant to always follow Hashem. That sounds like it's a group of people who did not know of a Torah, and King Yoshia is reintroducing it to them and telling them, hey, this is our history, we have to follow this. Why couldn't King Yoshia be a second Moses, pretending to be reinstating religion to a nation that did not know of it? 
but in truth, he was really starting a religion on his own. Now, obviously, there was a Jewish nation with a temple, because the story says they found it in a temple, but that could have been a different ver- version of Judaism. And our version of Judaism was what, was what started right there, right? It was a Jewish nation that had some other religion. King Yosha comes in, finds this Torah scroll. In this theory, he would be writing it himself, or Chilkiah, the man who found it, would wrote it himself. And then he reads it to the people and says, this is our history, we have to follow it. And that would be your gap and your reintroduction. The second seeming gap and reintroduction or history comes in the time of Ezra. So now Ezra lived during the Babylonian exile after the destruction of the first temple. So the destruction of the first temple happened in 420 BC, again, 30 years after this previous story. That's when Ezra lived. Uh, it's unclear if Ezra was born in the exile, maybe he was born, born a little pri- previous to the exile, but the majority of his life happened in the 70-year exile between the first and second temple. So the event we're t- we will be talking about takes place shortly after the construction of the second temple. Right, which is in 350 BC, so again, 70 years later. So Ezra was still alive at the time. There was a community of Jews that remained in Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple, and Ezra was the man responsible for the rebuilding of Jewish life after he returned with the exiled Jewish people to the land of Israel. So again, Ezra and all the sages and most of the Jewish people got exiled from Jerusalem to Babylonia after, or to Babylon, I should say, after the destruction of the first temple. There were Jews who never left, a small segment who never left. The Jewish people in, in Babylon got permission to return to the land of Israel and to rebuild the temple. They go back and they rebuild it, but again, it's a shattered community. We're talking post-destruction. The Jewish people were already in deep trouble well before the base of Mekdash, the temple was destroyed. So this is after destruction, after exile. This is a broken people a broken nation that lacked a lot of religiosity, and Ezra comes back and he's the hero who rebuilds Jewish life in Israel, paving the way to the second temple's glory. So now, I'm going to read from the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8, where it's going to discuss a seeming second introduction of the Jewish religion to the group of people who had remained in Israel. So now, I read, All the people gathered together as one man, before the water gate. The water gate was a southern entrance to the temple courtyard using the water libation services that took place during Sukkot. So again, this was during the building, uh, this was post the building of the second temple. And they asked Ezra, the scholar, to bring the scroll of the Torah of Moses, which Hashem had commanded to Israel. So Ezra the Kohen brought the Torah and the ears of all were attentive to the Torah. Ezra opened the scroll before the eyes of the people Jeshua, Bani, etc. And all the Levium helped the people understand the Torah. They read in the scroll, in God's Torah, clearly with the application of wisdom, and they helped the people understand the reading. They found written in the Torah, they found written in the Torah, that Hashem had commanded through the hand of Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in Sukkot during the festival that is in the seventh month. Seventh month is the month of Tishrei where Sukkot takes place. They commanded they should announce it and make proclamations in all their cities and in Jerusalem. So those people went out and made themselves sukkos, each man on his roof and in their courtyards, in the courtyards of the temple of God, in the plaza of the water gate. The children of Israel, this line is the most important, the children of Israel had not done so from the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day, and there was great joy. That's from the book of Nehemiah. 
Now, this seems to be saying a lot of gaps, right? The Jewish people didn't know Sukkot. They found it in the Torah. They needed help from the Levium and Ezra to read the Torah. They didn't even know how to read it. Why couldn't this be the reintroduction? Now, it gets even worse by Ezra when one considers the Gemara. It's a Gemara in Sanhedrin. In 21b, the Gemara says as follows. Rabbi Yossi says, The Torah was fitting to be given by Ezra to Israel if Moses had not preceded him. The Gemara again is openly saying that there was some sort of giving over of the Torah of Ezra that l- even reached the levels of the giving over the Torah of Moshe. Now again, even though the Gemara is written way later, the Gemara is a perfect representation of our story. So the claim that our story does not include a gap in it, does not include a revival in it, seems to be suspect. We just read two stories of gap and revival. And even within our tradition, the role of Ezra as Torah giver, or at least worthy of being Torah giver, is something that is prevalent in our tradition. So again, the question has to be asked, why does this not qualify as a gap within which the Torah was introduced? If there is such a gap, seemingly the Sinai proof falls apart, because this is a lie that people could believe. They don't know it to be not true. They cannot say for certain that they are not descendants of the original Jews who received a Torah from Moses and then lost it. Now, I know these questions are difficult to deal with, and I hate the fact that we're going to have to deal with them on the next episode, but I've been told that going longer than 20 minutes is a death to the podcast, so we will have to take the time to ponder these questions and know that there will be an answer. You know Jewish Thought Flow. You know we never leave you hanging. I'm Avi Cohen. And this is Jewish Thought Flow.